Hello. It's said that when the country is divided, the BBC is on the rack, and on Wednesday afternoon this week, its Director-General went to be racked by the Conservative 1922 Backbench Committee about the BBC's coverage of the Israel-Gaza conflict and other issues. Tim Davey is also under sustained and anguished criticism from some members of his own staff, particularly those with Jewish and Palestinian connections. And, of course, the BBC's enemies in the media are vociferous in demanding that the BBC itself calls Hamas a terrorist organisation. Well, to discuss the latest trials and tribulations of the BBC, I'm delighted to be joined by someone who has himself been racked in the past. Richard Sambrook is a former director of BBC News and director of the World Service and Global News, and he's now Emeritus Professor of Journalism at Cardiff University. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks, Roger. Um, Well, last night into the lion's den of the the 1922 committee, this brings back memories from the past. I was looking at a history of the BBC, the latest history, ends in 1987, is titled Pinkos and Traitors, which is what, of course, Mrs Thatcher's husband called the BBC. And then in 1983, over the Falklands, there was what was called an ox roasting when the BBC chairman and the director general had to go in front of that same 1922 committee. How would you rate this one in terms of uh, racking? Well, I I think it's interesting. I I believe there hasn't been another Director General in front of the 1922 Committee since the Falklands, so I'm not quite sure of the significance of it. And and obviously, 1922 discussions are um, supposedly confidential, or little bits have have come out, but I'm quite sure it was an uncomfortable occasion. I mean, Directors General, you know, brief groups of MPs all the time, but this feels like a slightly more formal occasion because it's in, in front of the 1922 committee and I'm quite sure they, they probably gave him both barrels not only over uh, Israel and Gaza but probably many of their, their other pet beefs as well. Yeah, apparently it was set up before the, uh, this particular conflict yeah. and uh, so they had things to talk about and obviously migration. I mean, when you go into that uh, as a director general, you have to offer them something. So he's apparently offered them something he was going to do an- anyway, another review of the BBC's cover of Migration, I think, to yeah. f- for further reviews they're doing. Well, reviews are, are quite easy to offer, aren't they, to be honest? And, and they're a good thing to do, so that's fine. They're a good thing to do, and some of the ones around the past actually have been really uh, really interesting about the coverage of science. So you think BBC shouldn't in the one way do it, they're responding to pressure. On the other hand, why shouldn't they do it? Why shouldn't they re-examine what they're doing as long as they don't bow to particular pressures from from government, particularly at times of uh, a licence fee. But the, the, the argument has, has coalesced, in a way, in terms of coverage, about the BBC's refusal to call it itself call Hamas a terrorist organisation. Mm. It reports that the British government and other people call it a terrorist organisation, but it's tried to hold the line that it itself doesn't call it that. Do you understand that position? Oh, of course, and then I've made that argument myself in the past, 20 years ago or whatever, when I was running news gathering operations. I think it's important to say this isn't a sort of BBC, peculiar BBC policy. This is a policy shared by many large news organisations, who, particularly those who report internationally. So it's shared by Reuters, the Associated Press, ITN, Sky, the Financial Times, the New York Times. I could go on and on. All share basically the same policy for the same reasons, which is, you know, it is important to try to uh, maintain not neutrality in a conflict, but impartiality and the ability to report from both sides. And those are two slightly different reasons, but I think they, they are important reasons. 
and you want to be believed. I think what it's difficult, of course, to get this over in a heated atmosphere, and one notices nobody's kicking the Financial Times for its policy. Well, exactly. In not college terrorist. No, it's just the BBC that get kicked. But it is a very difficult argument to put over because people say, look, what Hamas did was a terrorist act. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got, I have, I have a, a little bit of sympathy, and I think there is, a, there is obviously some difficulty around the policy. I do still believe it's the right one, and I support it. But what Hamas did was clearly a terrorist act, and what people want in the face of that is moral clarity. And referring to them as militants, which in my view is a totally inadequate term, is not sufficient, really. So, I mean, how the BBC gets around that, as you've said, is to report, you know, those governments who have prescribed it as a terrorist organisation, making clear it is prescribed as a terrorist organisation, and also very clearly reporting the facts on the ground of what has happened and what has taken place, in which, you know, people can be in no doubt about, you know, the, the horror of those attacks. So, you know, I don't think any viewers or listeners can really have, have been in doubt. I don't think any of the coverage was sanitised as a result of avoiding that word, but there are important principles behind it for all big international news organisations to try to preserve their ability to report from both sides safely and also to not be recruited into, you know, a political position. It's not for the BBC or any other media organisation to determine who is or is not terrorists. That's for governments and others to do. But they can absolutely report that, you know, the, the UK, the US and the EU have all prescribed Hamas and therefore I think the public are left in no doubt about the situation. Mm. But it's a very difficult argument to put across, obviously, and particularly in an emotional atmosphere. Indeed. The other thing that's going on, of course, I mean, there's the military conflict, there's a propaganda war. And uh, clearly the Israeli government will use the images, uh, which are terrible and obviously real, yeah. but will use them as effectively as they can to promote their case. And it is the case that most journalists are, are based in Israel. And Israel has uh, more... Well, more spokesmen with better English, actually. There aren't that many people in Gaza. There aren't that many camera teams. A highly dangerous place to be anyway. And also, a lot of the Palestinians don't speak English very well. So when you stand back and look at that, do you think Israel has an inbuilt public relations advantage? Um, well, all, all, all the things you just said are true, but I think that is the reason why the BBC has always tried to maintain a presence in Gaza. It's got correspondence in Gaza, Rushdie... Uh uh, Alabouf, who's there at the moment, and I think has always tried to report firsthand, and that's the advantage of it having its Arabic service and so on as well. So, you know, the BBC has the ability to report from the other side of the line, if you like, and does so. But, you know, Israel is a powerful state and clearly more powerful than, than the Palestinian state, and therefore it uses all of those advantages. You're right. Mm. And when you look at the coverage, uh, from the time when you were director of BBC now, something very, very significant has happened, which is, of course the expansion of uh, lies on the digital media and the ability to make those, disguise those lies in the most extraordinary way, mm. digitally. How much of a problem do you think that is becoming now in the coverage? I think it is a big problem, but I think most major news organisations recognise it and are doing what they can. We've seen the rise, I would say, one of the things we've seen in this conflict is the value of of what are called the new open source intelligence teams. And it's not just the BBC with the BBC Verify service, but the agencies, Associated Press, Reuters and many other news organisations have these open source teams who are able to forensically put together the picture of what has happened from intelligence, from video images, from cross-checking them, from satellite images and so on as well. So that sort of forensic intelligence approach to working out what has happened and what is true and what isn't 
is, I think, an increasingly important kind of part of the media coverage that's really come to the fore in, in this conflict in particular. I know that's very close to you because you're part of the Cambridge Disinformation Summit. But um, the fact is that that takes time. That sort of detailed well, that, yeah. e- examination of the evidence takes time. The images are already up and running. Uh, Rumour, you know, is, um, is running ahead of the facts. It always has done. Do you think it's more and more difficult to, as it were, those who establish, particularly if they're ruthless, establish the first image, the first idea, the first headline, are almost in the driving seat. And those who are trying to painstakingly examine whether that's true or not follow up perhaps days later. Well, I think that's true, and it's likely to get worse with AI. But I think there's a a kind of wider issue there as well in in terms of live and breaking news, because, as you say, the first people out of the traps are the ones who can establish the narrative to a large extent. And, you know, every conflict is a conflict of competing narratives as well now. But one of the things about live news, whether it's 24-hour news, whether it's social media or online, is that the audience is alongside the news organisation as they're trying to work out what's happened. So... Uh, and I don't think the audience always recognises or chooses to recognise the news-gathering process. So if a big event happens, like the the explosion of the hospital last week, obviously any news-gathering process is, you know, you call the Palestinian authorities and then you call the IDF or you do it the other way around and then you try and find eyewitnesses and you piece together what's happened. But with social media in particular and with 24-hour news, every step along the way is being broadcast. And a lot of the audience take the latest thing that's been put out there as the received and accepted position. They don't recognise that it's just one step out of dozens in trying to put together the picture of what's happened. And as a consequence of that... And you can't wait. You can't wait. I mean, obviously, the BBC has always been criticised in the past about perhaps not being as quick. But a settled view takes a long time to come forward. It can take hours or days. And you can't wait in news for that, can you? You can't wait in news. So... There's that difficulty. The BBC has apologised together with the New York Times and uh, I think now one or two others like CNN have followed about that, its initial Mm. report on the bombing of the hospital in Gaza, not because it said the Israelis had done it, but because it reported what Hamas said and did not, um, or could not at that time anyway, get an Israeli response. Very difficult. What would you have said to the reporter then about his, his or her use of words? Well, I think there are. I think there are two things there. I mean, there was a BBC reporter in a live two-way who who basically overreached. You know, was being invited to speculate by the presenter in London, and probably went too far and said something that they shouldn't, or made an assumption that they shouldn't have done, and that was wrong. And you would have to say to them that you've got to be very careful and methodical in laying out what you know and what you don't know and sticking very closely to it and also by the way briefing the presenters in London not to invite people on the ground to go beyond what they know or to speculate beyond what they know so there's one set of one set of issues there the other one is in how you word the breaking news alerts and how you word the updates again with attribution and I, I see that Deborah Turness in her latest message to staff has said that you know particularly the, the breaking news alerts on phones and so on should put the attribution first and the claim second rather than the claim first and the attribution second because people don't always get to the attribution and they just think the BBC says X has happened and believe it's their settled view when it's merely the very first stage in a long process. Now, I'm, I'm not uh, impartial on this issue, on the particular issue I want to discuss with you, but I've long argued as presenter of feedback and whatever that the BBC is appallingly slow at getting out there and explaining itself. 
uh, and sometimes arrogant, actually, and not wishing to do so. And I know there are people in the BBC who genuinely feel we don't want to make ourselves the story, you know, and I really understand that. But it's astonishing to me how the BBC has not got out front before now and explained these complexities more clearly to the public. It's a very difficult issue to understand. They should be out there. I mean, lots of decisions that you took, you must have thought, hey, that's about 53 49%. Yeah. But if the public understood that you did consider the 49%, but you came down, oh, the, I can't even add up, can I, 51%, <laughs> it would be better. Do you think the BBC has to be more, far more open now in such a contested time at explaining itself, yet somehow without making itself the issue. Uh, I, I do. And, of course, that's a very difficult thing to do. And not everybody and not every executive is very good at doing it. And you're right, the BBC tends to be overly defensive. Uh, that's its kind of default position. But I think it's increasingly important they are able to get out there and explain what they're doing. And it's about, I think that transparency of process, if you like, explaining how editorial judgments are reached, explaining the process that goes on behind um, um, making the news and so on, it, it is a vital part of trust, really. And, and increasingly, people won't trust an organisation who hide what they do or hide why or how they come to decisions. So I do think it's important. And I don't think the BBC has been particularly good at it. They kind of put forward John Simpson last week to try and explain the, the terrorist thing. And John is a, a friend and a, and a very esteemed and respected colleague, but I don't think he quite got the tone right. It felt very lofty coming down from on high and actually it needed someone who recognised the concerns and sympathised with the concerns, but set out why it was an important principle for the, the BBC to stick to. Of course, behind all this, the BBC News is trying to implement uh, significant cuts. Um, very difficult to impose cuts when a war breaks out and when other things happen. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Um, we can't send people because, well, mm, we haven't got the money. So I mean, this is doubtless going to compound the problem. But anyway, uh, there, there's a process of cuts going on. And, of course, one of the things that happened um, is that the BBC got rid of its, uh, I think, 85-year-old Arabic service in January as a result of the cuts to the BBC World Service. Of course, you were director of that. Um, do you think that was a mistake? Well, uh, it's one of those things where, of course, you would like to, to keep Arabic radio going. But, you know, they've still got Arabic television and they've got Arabic online services. And that's where the bulk of the audience is for those services. So when they have to make hard decisions, part of the decision is, well, you know, which services has the audience fallen away from? And perhaps that's that's where we have to make the cut. So, you know, what, what yeah, I... But the Russian, the Russian news... But, you know, the Russian news agency Sputnik has launched an Arabic-language radio station in Lebanon on yeah. the frequency free previously used by the BBC's Arabic service. So we should be in no doubt who's going to step in. Well, the timing was unfortunate, and <laughs> for sure. And, you know, let's not forget that last time uh, the BBC cut an Arabic TV station back in the 90s, Al Jazeera was launched off the back of recruiting all of its staff so there will always be other organizations who will want to take advantage of where the bbc retreats so you know i think it's unfortunate and and it would be much better if they'd been able to maintain um uh, arabic radio but some very very hard choices have had to be made and and are going to have to be made in future as well and that's the reality of you know losing 30 percent of its budget in in the last decade or whatever it is uh, at least 30 percent in real terms but i mean you talked about hard decisions in the future we've seen the ones in the past where you've combined news into a virtually single channel bbc well uh, world news sort of disappearing mm. as it were well I, i'm sorry i must use language that that's not fair anyway one channel where yeah. there were two Let's put it that way. You talked about further difficult choices to come. What do you think they they are? Well, 
Uh, we've seen the speculation about Newsnight, which, you know, was a, a fantastic programme in its day. Its audience has dropped from something like 800,000 down to 300,000, and it's got a budget of 13 million, I think, and they're talking about cutting about 5 million out of it, which I think would basically cut back on its original reporting significantly. So you're seeing the possibility of Newsnight, you know, if it, if it survives, becoming a discussion programme or more of a discussion programme. On the one hand, you know, late night current affairs discussion isn't such a terrible thing. On the other hand, I personally feel we're awash with discussion and opinion. And what's at a premium these days is first-hand reporting and investigation and of course those are the most expensive things so I think it's a real dilemma for the BBC to work out how it protects the really expensive parts of its news operation which are where most of the value lies in the face of having to make very significant cuts when there is the option of cheap opinion available that, that actually you know works well on other channels. And the dangers of a narrowing of the agenda, I mean, you would be concerned about what's happened to local media, very significant. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you could argue market failure there. And the BBC says that it's not really cutting local radio, but few people believe it. And it's turning local radio into regional radio at certain times. Mm. And the ability, certain to go out and report and, and, and widen the agenda is limited. And the thing about Newsnight, which, which was significant, obviously, was its ability, when it at its best with investigations, to keep returning and returning to the subject with really informed reporters who could invest time. And so they built up a level of authority and could pursue subjects in depth. I, I, mean, I strongly agree with that, because I think when the BBC's journalism is at its best, it's when it's doing something different from the pack. It's when it differentiates itself. And therefore, that's also a justification for public funding. And that means it mean investigative teams. It means, you know, resources around the world. It means bureau and ability to report from around the world and places other people don't and so on as well. But that is all the really expensive stuff. And what we have at the moment is a climate where actually, you know, uh, as I say, discussion and opinion programs are much cheaper and probably pull in just as much of an audience. But all, all this is against the wider background of the continuing kind of digital revolution in, in media. And, you know, it, it seems to me I haven't had a, a personal discussion with Tim Davey or, or others, but, you know, clearly what they're trying to do is to develop the digital and the on-demand services is where they see the future and particularly where they see they're going to attract and hang on to a younger audience, which is essential. Yeah, but what you're talking about there may be the BBC's future, but that's not necessarily future public service broadcasting because one reading of what happens is that the BBC has accepted basically that the licence fee is in its last throes, shall we say, that it needs to survive as an international broadcasting business organization is pouring money to bbc america and so on and that absolutely makes sense from a business position whether it makes sense from a public service position is a question mark and again this raises a big thing to me the bbc seems to have made a decision it probably the right one with a conservative government there was no point basically going back and complaining and saying you're cutting and cutting and cutting and get nowhere so buckle down you know make the cuts make the organization more efficient and i think the director general has done that and then later on we'll see what happens but the net result of that is the there isn't a public debate about the choices that are being made as you well know if the bbc wishes to open a new service they have to get permission if they want to close one they don't so what we've been seeing is cutting budgets cutting back in various areas without any significant public debate about what public service broadcasting is or should be now and the role the BBC should play within that. And at the heart of that public service 
broadcasting is its journalism. Do you think it's now time for the BBC to say, we've cut a great deal, we're now into territory where the public should be consulted about the next cuts? Well, that debate about what is public service broadcasting and what's the role of the BBC happens in the run-up to each charter renewal. And so, you know, presumably it's scheduled for the run-up to the next charter renewal in three or four years' time. But you're right, things are changing very rapidly and the whole environment is changing rapidly, including the the wider broadcast environment. So I, I, I do think there is a need for a open and public debate about what the public want from public service broadcasting because I don't think it's very well articulated in general. I think if you went up to most people in the street and said, tell me what you think public service broadcasting is, I'm not sure you would get a very consistent answer about it. And some people might not recognise the term at all. So, I mean, I think you need to have a very strong case for the value of public service broadcasting in you know, a multi-channel, on-demand digital environment, which hasn't taken place for a long time. Now, presumably, if there is a change of government in the next year or so, then an incoming government is going to want that discussion as well. So uh, I can see that coming, you know, a little bit over the horizon, but I do think it's necessary, I agree. Meanwhile, uh, people like you, I know you're an emeritus professor now, but you cast a, can I say, fatherly eye, or should I say grandfatherly (laughs) eye? Hold on. Should I insult you further? No. Uh, On what is happening, obviously, Cardiff, in terms of journalism. And you have to prepare young people for a a future. Um, What are you preparing them for now? What are you saying to them? Well, it's very much more complicated training as a journalist now than it was when I did it many decades ago because they have to have a great variety of skills. So they, whether they're going into online or broadcasting or magazines or, you know, associated with a newspaper or whatever it may be, they all need to know how to take video. They all need to know how to uh, edit audio. Uh, they all need to know about data. They all need to know about you know, how online works. They all need to understand social media and understand the pitfalls of social media as well as the core principles of journalism that you and I would recognise from from the past, which still hold true. So th- th- there is an awful lot that they have to take on, and we've got AI coming down the road very rapidly with all sorts of pitfalls around it, but also you know, all sorts of potential opportunities as well. So that's another layer that they're going to have to take on board. So you know, the training of it is a mix of practical skills – editorial ethical skills, if you like, and um, what I personally do with them is work through lots of case studies, good examples and bad examples that they can learn some basics from, uh, and then they have to go out, you know, whether it's on, as internships or on placements initially or their first jobs and, you know, get their hands dirty and learn in practice. And, of course, what you're really doing is trying to set them up to be able to to learn constructively when they actually get out there because they're not going to learn everything in a in a kind of less than nine months, uh, even in the university as great as Cardiff. Uh, but you'd still do it again if you were 21? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic job, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, it's a very privileged job. You get, you, you get out, you witness history, you get to talk to people, you, you know, you, you get the adrenaline buzz of daily news, you get the, you know, the intellectual stimulation of current affairs and documentaries. It's a great job, of course it is. But the one thing you haven't mentioned, I think I haven't mentioned, I mean, you, you correctly talked about the in much greater technical skills that, uh, that young people need now. But when I look back in my, my own career, whatever, um, I, I think there was a fundamental problem in that I came from an arts background and I didn't have sufficient scientific 
um, understanding, certainly didn't understand statistics, and had to catch up, particularly when Mrs. Thatcher came around, in terms of economics and so on. I really look back and think, uh, and I, well, the, the people who were working for me, myself and some of my reporters, were not sufficiently trained in those areas. And I, you know, the, the one worry one can still have is that too many arts graduates, I don't want to insult them, but um, including myself, uh, but in a way too many arts graduates are coming through and therefore every journalist now needs to under understand, mm. for example, statistics far better than you and I needed to when we started out. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that's why in, in Cardiff I did two things. We made a, a, a data journalism module course, so every uh, journalist coming through the courses has to do data and statistics in order to understand that because that's going to be an increasingly important part of it. I also launched a specialist course on computational journalism with the computer science department because, again, I think journalists need to be at the forefront of the technological developments and thinking about how those developments can be applied to journalism. And AI is a fantastic example of that, but there are many others. So I think it's important for, you know, not, it's not, that's not the biggest part of what we do, but you get a, a significant number coming through that course and they, they're the ones that get snapped up for jobs generally because they have a combination of computer science and journalism awareness, which is actually at a premium at the moment. Uh, one final thing, really, which is the what has astonished me, in the, and I, I don't know whether we put this down to Trump or whatever, is that all the experience we had uh, in the past, I'm afraid I'm older than you, so I remember a little bit further back, politicians would shout and get angry with you. They'd, um, they'd say the most terrible things often, whatever. Well, you just put up with it. But on the whole, they didn't lie. They didn't tell the truth often, <laughs> but yeah. they didn't lie. Now they lie, particularly in America, and seem to think they can get away with it because they do get away with it. The the level of our discourse, your former boss Mark Thompson was talking to me about this as well, and he did, he did some lectures on this. Shame has disappeared from the political lecture. Yes. Lexicon, hasn't it? Well, I think so. I, I, I do. But actually, I'm I'm not too despondent about that because I think I see a lot more pushback coming from in interviews and so on. I think we saw that during certainly the Conservative Party conference this year where there were some very strange announcements made, but actually there was quite a lot of pushback and challenge from interviewers across the range of broadcasters, not just the BBC. You're seeing the rise of fact-checking services. You are seeing pushback and I think more confidence from the media in tackling that. But you're right, the climate has changed completely and you know, the media are seen as a legitimate political target because the media has been politicised and we are, the, the difficulty is I think the media, I say we, but in, in the broadest sense, are part of the story now and therefore the media has to kind of report the attacks on itself as part of the story as well and that's quite a difficult thing to do. That has shifted with, a, as I say, a broad politicisation of media coverage. And uh, it follows from that, as you just said earlier, that media organisations like the BBC have to be more transparent. Just as people, I think, have lost trust in politicians, they perhaps have lost trust in a range of institutions, including the BBC. The figures seem to suggest that. And the only answer, though, apart from saying when you're wrong and going, is to be more open, surely. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But and it's quite a difficult thing to do. I mean, either institutionally, with an organisation like the BBC, which has always been overly defensive, in, in my view, and I, and I think yours, but even as we were talking about before, trying to be transparent in the midst of a, you know, a, a very kind of fevered atmosphere around, for example, the kind of conflict that's going on at the minute, how you get that transparency into you know, your coverage, into a minute and a half package or into a two-way or into a headline is difficult. 
but I don't think it's impossible. I think there are ways of signalling it. I think there are ways of providing context and background or leading people and making it available for people. And I think that all of the media, this is not just a BBC issue, has to be much more explicit about the way it works and what it does and how it does it than has traditionally been the case. The media tends to work in shorthand, and I think they've got to open up that shorthand for the public so the public can understand what they do and why they do it. Richard Sandbrook, thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Rita Lashar, the former presenter of the BBC's The World Tonight, and I'm sure her perspective on what's happening internationally will be an interesting one. You'll be able to find my take on this week's interview in my weekly blog. You can access this by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash beadwatch. It's less than a cup of coffee per month at pound ninety-nine. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it is produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It's a good egg production. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>